While we struggle, as we must, to limit rapid climate change by mitigations great and small, we also have to think carefully about its likely political consequences, because a world environment as radically changed as climate science suggests will have massive impacts on the way human life on Earth is organized. You just heard a quote from the preface of Climate Leviathan by Joel Wainwright and Jeff Mann, a book that tries to answer the question that is posed in their preface, uh, how can we imagine the politics of the future of climate change? So for the final of our trinity of episodes in season two, uh, things left out by Kim Stanley Robinson in his novel Ministry for the Future or Critiques of Ministry for the Future, we're going to hear from one of the two authors, Professor Joel Wainwright, about his particular vision, which I think he would be the first to say is inflected by his political commitments and his disciplinary training, but his particular vision of the politics of the future of climate change. Professor, thanks for coming today. Hi, good morning, Annalisa. Thanks for having me on. Would you mind telling me a little bit about yourself? Sure. Briefly, my name is Joel Wainwright. I'm a professor in the Department of Geography at Ohio State University. And uh, my, my work tends to focus on political economy and philosophy and environmental change. And I'm the co-author with Jeff Mann of a book called Climate Leviathan, A Theory of Our Planetary Future, and uh, also a keen reader of Kim Stanley Robinson. I've never met the gentleman, but apart from reading his books, we're separated by a few degrees of freedom because um, his PhD supervisor, Fred Jameson, is also a, a, a kind of a mentor of mine. Okay, so let's start by talking about the politics of Ministry for the Future and then move on to the arguments that you present in Climate Leviathan. So let's talk about works of fiction imagining climate futures, works like Kim Stanley Robinson's Ministry of the Future. How do you feel about this? You know, I have mixed feelings about it because um, in many respects, the novel is, is one person's creative attempt to sketch a, uh, a future which could be characterized in the terms that Jeff and I use in the book as a kind of emergent planetary sovereign of a capitalist type. In other words, what we call climate Leviathan. And to do so in a way that is, if not exactly utopian, certainly not dystopian. And so much of the works that are produced these days, whether in film or uh, writing about where the world is going are notably dystopian for understandable reasons. We're going to get back to defining that Leviathan a little bit later on, but what do you think about Kim Stanley Robinson specifically? What's his place in this landscape? Kim Stanley Robinson's done something different. He's tried to give us an anti-dystopian novel that sketches how something like progressive political change could come about through the emergence of a ministry for the future, whereby bright people try to coordinate the actions of the world and avoid the worst case scenarios of rapid climate change. And as someone who's who's written and spoken about the importance of creative works that get us out of the dystopian trap and give us new creative ways of imagining a better world, uh, it would be totally contradictory for me to to pan Robinson's book as a, you know falling short in that regard. I respect all of that. But having said that, I have to say, I find the novel to be rather disappointing in, in certain important respects. And part of part of that disappointment concerns uh, what we might call the limited political imagination of the novel. It's not really clear who the historical actors are and why they're struggling in the way they are. And so one of the tensions that runs through the whole novel is the ambiguity between, on one hand, this tight-knit group of people at the ministry who seem to be acting like a new global government or planetary sovereign, and the things that are happening in different parts of the world that they clearly are not in control of or perhaps are not well connected to. And that tension is, 
I think important for the novel, but not very well managed or, or convincingly portrayed, I might say, through the characters in the novel. Robinson gets the science much better than he gets the politics. Yeah, I've also kind of reflected that he doesn't necessarily treat indigeneity and also kind of the politics and unique situations of India and China necessarily that well, which are maybe some issues for the podcast. Now I want to get back to that question about climate leviathan that we were talking about earlier. And I want to read a quote from your book from chapter two, which reads, climate leviathan is defined by the dream of a planetary sovereign. It is a regulatory authority armed with democratic legitimacy, binding technical authority on scientific issues, and a panopticon-like capacity to monitor the vital granular elements of our emerging world, freshwater, carbon emissions, climate refugees, and so on. And you're going to talk about how this is one possible climate future, but it's not perhaps the climate future that you would like to see. But let's talk about why, where did you get that name, Climate Leviathan, and what does that phrase mean to you? Our book is called Climate Leviathan which is partly in homage to Thomas Hobbes, who wrote the famous work Leviathan hundreds of years ago and what is generally regarded as one of the foundational texts of modern political theory. Um, suffice to say that if Hobbes is known for anything, it's for positing a political condition in which life is nasty, brutish, and short, and that essentially humanity is constantly at war with itself, war of all against all. And in this setting, what is needed is some kind of powerful figure or institution to seize power and put people in order, to order society. What Leviathan uh, by Hobbes is, in short, is an attempt to sketch, to speculate, as he says, about the future of political sovereignty. And one of the reasons the book is so important is because in retrospect, we can see that what Hobbes was groping for was a description of the modern form of sovereignty that we retrospectively call modern sovereignty and associate with the capitalist nation state. And that's why political theory takes that text as so fundamental, because it helps us to understand how we got to where we are today. So in, in short, what if we think like Hobbes today and we say, OK, where where is politics likely to go in the event of rapid climate change, which is a question many people are asking? Well, that's what our book set out to answer. So you try and answer this question by coming up with four possible forms of the politics of life under climate change. What are those four things and how did you come up with them? We set up a fourfold typology where we essentially sketch four possible futures. And those two relationships are first uh, the capitalist organization of economic life. And then in the second place, we're either going to see the perpetuation of what is sometimes called uh, wrongly in my view, but at any rate, a kind of Hobbesian world of nation states, or will arrive at a new type of organization of political sovereignty that's based on the world as a whole, world citizenship, if you were, organized by a planetary sovereign. Okay, so um, that gives us four options. We could have a capitalist leviathan, a capitalist planetary sovereign, or we could have a post-capitalist communist leviathan, or we could have a, uh, a world that is more or less like it is today, except even more intensely capitalist and Hobbesian. Or finally, we could have a world in which somehow we escape from capitalism and the present form of sovereignty without falling into planetary sovereignty. 
Okay, so imagine a graph with two axes. One is capitalist, non-capitalist, and the other is democratic authoritarian. And then there's four possibilities in each square. There's capitalist and authoritarian, capitalist and democratic, non-capitalist and authoritarian, non-capitalist and democratic. So Climate Leviathan, uh, you say, is kind of what Kim Stanley Robinson is depicting. But let's talk about the big question, the elephant in the room, which is why, what is capitalism, first of all, and what is your critique of it? Capitalism is a way of organizing a society. In, in the lingo, it's a social formation. It is to be distinguished historically from all those other ways of organizing society that preceded capitalism, which it's worth remembering covers about 99.9% of human history. Capitalism's only been existence in a few places for a few hundred years. It really didn't envelop the whole world and transform livelihoods everywhere until the 19th century. And we've only been living, therefore, in a world of global capitalism, we might say, for at, at most on the outside, I'd, I'd say about 200 years or so. So it, it, it's during this period that we see a number of very important changes all around the world in the way human beings live on the earth. And there's good reason for this. Uh, under a capitalist mode of organizing society, the human relationship with the earth is, is broken apart and broken down into pieces, you might say. And uh, transformed under a generalized pressure to convert things and make things into commodities, which can be bought and sold in order to produce a profit, because that's the ethos, that's the purpose of capitalism. This happens to human lives too. Uh, all of us who are defined in Marxist terms as members of the class called proletariat, um, make a living by essentially converting our lives into a commodity called labor power and competing with one another to sell it for a decent wage so that we can you know, make money and pay the rent and buy food and so on. So uh, one other point that has to be emphasized here is that capitalism is unique in history of all the different ways humans have lived in the fact that it's inherently growth oriented. It's, it's not just an accumulation oriented form of society, it's a growth oriented form of society. It has built into it a drive for expanded reproduction. And of course, the problem here is that if you take a form of society that's based on the creation of commodities and the circulation of commodities, and all those commodities, of course, involve in part some fraction of the earth itself, whether in the form of matter, energy, what have you. And then you make it expansionary so that it, it isn't just about accumulation, but expansion. And that's all playing out on a finite sphere then you can see that you're going to have a problem sooner or later as you multiply the scale and size of economic life over time. Humans have been undergoing a massive experiment over the last few centuries as we reorganize what it means to be human on Earth on a capitalist basis. And we are essentially systematically polluting, destroying, etc., the Earth as a whole in the process. And climate change is just the most terrible and extreme uh, version of this more general process. So some might say, and kind of the obvious really thing to say, is that it, it's hard to imagine the end of capitalism. It's hard to imagine a real alternative to capitalism. So why not accept Kim Stanley Robinson's vision, of course, including the global planetary government basically guiding us towards a future where emissions are severely reduced, using financial instruments like his proposed carbon coin, and uh, incentivizing extractive industry companies to switch to trying to produce renewable energy and trying to suck carbon out of the atmosphere. What's wrong with this vision? Why, why are you critiquing it? Isn't that better than nothing? And isn't that definitely better than business as usual? I'd say the basic problem with Climate Leviathan 
is that it's not going to be democratic uh, in, in the sense that you're not going to have a redistribution of power in a world, but rather a further concentration of power. The future that would need to come about if we were to address in some kind of just fashion climate change uh, is probably not going to look like the way it's portrayed in the ministry for the future, because it would have to involve a really large global struggle by a lot of people to change the world in its fundamentals. The problem is that if we have a global capitalist elite uh, prepare something like a ministry for the future to produce a kind of combination of geoengineering and global regulation of politics and economics in order to stabilize the global climate, it could work at the technical level. We don't deny that these things are technically possible. But our claim in a nutshell is that that world is not going to be just. That world is certainly not going to be democratic. And as a consequence of all that, what we'll have is a world that is even more divided and undemocratic than the one we live in now. In a word, what what this means is that climate change presents all of humanity with a new version of an old problem. The old problem is the problem that's been haunting the left, including liberalism, from its onset, which is to say, Once you free up a kind of market-based society to have the competitive compulsion to produce and exchange commodities at the heart of everyday life, what are you going to do about inequalities that result? What are you going to do about environmental problems? problems? These questions have been around since the beginning. What climate change has done is simply give us a kind of ecological deadline. It's forced us to deal with this really quickly right now. And the cool thing about Robinson's book is that he he tries to sketch out a way that like it could kind of all work out where we end up with the ministry for the future and a kind of soft landing for global capitalism through planetary climate change. And again, I think we need creative attempts to sketch what that looks like. I totally agree. And I'd love to see a lot more projects like Ministry for the Future from different perspectives with different angles. Um, but moving back to this question about justice and democracy. One very compelling part of your book is the part about adaptation, where you write about how the quote-unquote adaptation framework suppresses the fact that adapting to climate change won't be cheap, many people will suffer, and the people who suffer will be in Africa, in Asia, in Polynesia, and they will mostly be poor, vulnerable people. Could you talk about this? So the first thing that has to be said is that the moral problem of climate change, in a nutshell, is that the people who cause the problem are not the ones who are going to experience the consequences. We're talking mainly about a group of people who are wealthy and from wealthy societies. On the other hand, the people who are already suffering the worst consequences didn't cause the problem. We're talking mainly about poor people in general, and also people who live in low-lying regions like cities near coasts or in island states or in cities where they're experiencing heat stress routinely or farmers who are dependent on rain-fed agriculture and precipitation regimes have changed and are no longer reliable. When you, when you look geographically at where these groups map out, what we see in general, and again, speaking at planetary level generalizations here, climate change has particularly been caused by societies with uh, high per capita emissions historically. We're talking about here like United States, uh, Europe, England, Canada, Australia, Japan. And so these are rich countries that are by and large not suffering very much from climate change. And the, the region of the world with by far the 
most people who are already suffering the consequences of climate change is Asia in general, specifically East Asia, Southeast Asia, Southeast Asia, and South Asia. So on the flip side of the climate adaptation question, I've heard several times in discussion of climate communication that it's better not to mention that Westerners or the rich or what have you will have to make sacrifices as well, that this kind of high consumption lifestyle really just can't go on. This makes people more comfortable accepting messaging about climate change, according to the orthodoxy. How do you think about this? How can we frame this problem for the public. So what I think you're referring to is a tendency among some liberal social scientists who study the problem of communication uh, to say that if we talk about climate change and we moralize along these lines in places like the United States, that rather than making people feel more motivation to act on climate change, that they'll actually become less motivated. I've seen the evidence. It's true. What is being really communicated through climate denialism is a response to that kind of moralism that says, we are not at fault, you are not to blame. And we on the left need to come up with a powerful corrective to this, which does not simply subsist, you know, uh, consist of trying to stuff more scientific facts down people's throats because that doesn't work. Neither is it gonna be sufficient, however, to simply moralize and say, quote unquote, we have to do this. What's missing is a political argument and an economic argument. The people who have to change the most are the very rich. The planet simply cannot afford their way of life. So we all have to make common cause against essentially ending the carbon emissions of the rich. All right. And that brings us very nicely to the most important set of questions I think that we have, which is what is the alternative that you put forward in Climate Leviathan, this democratic non-capitalist world, which you call Climate X? What is that? First, for the for the listeners who have not read Climate Leviathan, uh, the last quarter of the book uh, sketches what we might consider to be a kind of utopian alternative to a world of, of Climate Leviathan. And for, for want of a better name, we call the future that we would really want to see Climate X. And X is a bit of an inside joke, I suppose, it, but, it, but it has a serious meaning. It, it refers to the unknown quality, like you might try and solve for in algebra like solve for X. And what we're saying essentially is this is what we have to figure out together. Formulaically, climate X describes a future in which on one hand, there's been a kind of general upheaval worldwide, not just against bad government or uh, rich people, but specifically against the capitalist way of organizing life. After all, human history has seen many huge changes in how people organize life economically. So why can't we speculate about one more? But that's only part of the transformation. The other one, which is not covered in Kim Stanley Robinson's novel, would be the transformation of political authority so that it's no longer dominated either by territorial capitalist nation states or by something akin to a ministry for the future, where you have essentially like a tiny technocratic super elite sitting in some place, surprise, surprise, here again in his novel, it's, it's Europe, who are essentially managing the planet as a whole. How do we avoid that scenario so that we have redistributed political power so that people everywhere are living lives where there's genuine belonging and democracy? So in Climate X, we sketch these uh, what we might call minimal, minimal qualities of such a world. But as many have pointed out, we don't really get very far in explaining what that looks like. In our defense, there's a simple reason for that. We're a very long way from this, and we don't think that there are 
there's a, there's no clear blueprint. It's not like I can say, oh, you know, look at the Zapatistas of Chiapas. They've, they've perfected this model. So we all have to copy them. I know the Zapatistas would be the first to say, like, it's not that simple. Because if you tried to do what they did in a different place, like Massachusetts, it would look rather different. As for the, the question of how we could live economic life after capitalism, here again, we remind our readers that, you know, the vast majority of human existence has not been defined by capitalism. And as we read Karl Marx, what he's calling what, 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 what he called for and what we could call for are ways of organizing economic life that are based on what we might call genuine dignity and the equality of humanity to organize life in a way that meets everyone's needs without the compunction of permanent competition on a global labor market to produce and exchange commodities to make money for those who own the means of production. In a word, a socialist or communist or uh, future, which is genuinely democratic. Okay, granted, we'd be the first to admit, like we have never seen that scaled up. Could you give some concrete examples of the blueprint or of places where you really see Climate X possibly starting to form? We tried as much as possible to ground our illustrations in what we might call the real possible radical alternative forms of economic life and political life that we do see in the world today, but everywhere which are only imminent because they can't scale up, as we say, because they're confronted by the capitalist nation state. Uh, in our recent history, perhaps the two best known examples are the Zapatistas of Chiapas, who have essentially tried to subtract themselves from the state and subtract themselves from capital. And they would be the first to say that very modestly that they haven't completely succeeded in either sense, but they're doing their best. And they encourage other experiments along the same lines. Another well-known experiment along these lines was that of Rojava, um, which um, as your audience may know, is uh, a, a sub-region in, uh, across uh, the, the world of uh, the Kurdish people that has been undergoing some uh, terrible violence over the last, basically your entire lifetime. But where for a period of time, there was uh, a very a remarkable revolutionary experiment in a, a radically democratic, non-capitalist uh, um, political economic formation under the most difficult possible circumstances under attack, I think at one point simultaneously by uh, three different armies. Last question, what should the average listener do? Is there an answer to that question or is that too individualistic a framework? What do you think? Jeff, Jeff and I have a very direct answer to the what should I do question. It's just that it's perhaps not the one that people really want, but it's it's an honest one, which is that we think that the the fundamental problem with our politics of climate change today uh, is that we lack a clear imagination of how things could be otherwise and a political strategy for how to get there. And this problem is so severe that we believe that the most important thing a young person can do right now, if they want to really contribute to climate justice, is to try to stop and think very critically about what you've been taught about the politics and economics of the world in which you live. And to try and work out for yourself, uh, but not just alone, but particularly through reading works, including works in the Marxist tradition, uh, how we might actually build social movements that would bring about the political transformation of capitalism. Uh, that's the most important thing. And so that means that in the first instance, we have to do a kind of labor of the imagination. And again, I would say the achievement of the Ministry for the Future, the novel, 
is that it seems to be providing a tool that helps many young people in that regard. And I think that for that reason, that's part of why you're, you're doing this podcast. You're acknowledging that this novel seems to help some people in that way. And, you know, we need that. We desperately need that. So then I would say to your listener, but don't stop there. Don't just read Robinson. Read his, read some works by his, the person to whom the book is dedicated, Fred Jameson. Read some Marx and, and read more generally in the broad world historical tradition of, of uh, revolutionary thought, because it's going to not only inspire you, but give you many different tools and insights with which to imagine a different future. Great. That's a nice note to end on and a different call to action than we've heard. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate your time. Um, thanks again for your interest. And listener, if you'd like to check out Climb of the Bithin, it's available from Verso Books, on Amazon, and wherever else you'd like to get your books. You just heard Climate Futures Season 2, Episode 3. Check out our episodes on healthcare, on indigeneity, and I'm excited to announce that next season, Season 3, we're going to talk about what I think is really the core of a climate problem, the energy system. So stay tuned. And for now, I'm Annalisa Kingsbury-Lee, your host, and this has been Climate Futures. Climate Futures.